This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Dynamic Urban Design, a handbook for creating sustainable communities worldwide. And the author is Michael Von Hausen, and Michael joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Michael. Hi, good afternoon. Great to Pleasure have you. to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. Urban design is long overdue. I don't know if you can ever stay ahead of it with the way the population is increasing. But let's talk about, uh, let me just read a couple of things you've written about your book. You say, my book presents a dynamic urban design model by which cities and communities can be planned, designed, and built that is more environmentally sensitive, socially responsible, and economically efficient. Well, we could just spend all our time just talking about that sentence. (laughs) That kind of sums it up very, very well. Uh, It's community-based, comprehensive, and dynamic, built for change. Well, before we get into some of the details, uh, Michael, tell us about your background. Uh, You've been at this uh, quite a long time, uh, many decades, and why you decided to write this book. Uh, excellent question. Uh, I have been practicing now for over 30 years. I, I've taught in the United States at university and in Canada. Um, uh, I graduated from Harvard University about 30 years ago with a master's in urban design, but also with a specialty in real estate development. And over the years, uh, I found that in working in both the private and public practice. I worked for the city of Vancouver, as you know, is renowned for its quality of design. I worked with them for 10 years. And I found that uh, what's failing in many cases is a community-based process that is really uh, based on a sense of place and uh, that incorporates not only the physical, but the social and then the ex, uh, the economic prosperity component, all hugely important. So in that discovery, I said, well, this has to be documented. And uh, I thought, and my approach is always applied theory. So in this book, I have um, 15 uh, firsthand case studies uh, from the round, around the world uh, that provide not only professionals, students, but also community advocates and politicians, uh, the tools for doing it right. In other words, creating a community-based uh, approach that ends up in ground-based, that is, community-based support uh, and a, a great urban design plan that combines uh, that green and sustainable component with the aspect of economic resilience. And I think that's... Um, the key to really developing uh, future cities. And as you know, uh, as we approach 7 billion population around the world, uh, we have to design our cities in such a way that um, they're not only resilient, but they evolve over time to become, again, a great attractor factor for uh, people who live there. You've received quite a few great reviews. I'm just reading one. Finally, in one book, A Complete Guide to the Theory, Practice, and Potential of Urban Design by one of Canada's preeminent urban designers. So that's a feather in your, obviously, your urban design hat. Uh, Let's get right down to basics, Michael. What is dynamic urban design? Well, it's well. It's interesting. Urban design in itself is simply uh, the process by which design, by which cities and communities are planned, designed, and built. What this adds to that basic urban design um, aspect is the dynamism. That is the aspect of time. How do we actually design cities that are not static? 
that are not evolving to become more prosperous, uh, more healthy. And that's something I think we've been uh, remiss about. In other words, we've we continue to design buildings, but we're uh, remiss in terms of designing dynamic cities that can actually bring nature into them. The incredible engines, evolving engines of economic prosperity, and then that all um, integrated with uh, socially responsible uh, land use planning uh, that includes uh, everyone and um, both in process and in product. Now, your model, you say, will improve world cities, this whole dynamic urban design process. And you talk about using nine elements as, the, uh, as part of this model. Now, tell us a little bit about how this model is divided up and, and these elements are put into place. Excellent. Uh, I think um, I'll explain it in a uh, for the for um, people who are listening, it's broken into three components. The first one is the framework, and the framework uh, is uh, made up of place, that is the importance of place and the people there, the history of place, the process, that is a customized process that fits the place, and a series of plans, not one urban design plan, but a series of plans that actually set out things like mobility, land use, housing frameworks, and so forth. That's the first overall framework. Sometimes that is the limit of urban design. The second element are the components, what I call the C components. The first S stands for social, the second E stands for ecological, and the third E stands for economic, which collectively uh, creates that social, uh, physical and economic prosperity um, components that normally are represented in the sustainable model. Now then, those two, the first two, that is place, process, and plans, the C components as I outlined, are then measured, and this is very important in what, what I call the third component, measurement. The measurement component includes elements, that is what makes a successful urban enclave, the principles, that is, what should guide the development of, of urban, that is, both downtown, suburban, and rural, those are three kinds of urbans, and finally, um, those two are combined with targets, that is, specific measurements that can monitor and see the success of the process as it moves along and as it is realized. This is not just theory, obviously. You're, I, I think everyone's catching a sense of how practical this. This is a handbook, as you say, and you have a, a number of case studies. Now, tell us about some about those case studies, why it's so important to have those in this book. Well, you know, we read, we read so much about award-winning projects, and my experience, interesting enough, is you hear about a project and or you read about a project in a magazine, then you go out and see it and experience it. And you immediately say to yourself, wow, there are certain aspects of this that I think are successful because you're observing it. Uh, but what I've found is first-hand case studies, in other words, through my practice, starting again how the process evolved to the product really gives the reader a first-hand profile of not only the success factors that lead, led to its approval and building, but also the lessons learned in terms of uh, possibly oversights, um, little keys. I have a number of checklists in the book that really inform the, the or provide as part of the handbook um, a list to just check against, have I covered everything in this particular community process? Are, uh, am I measuring the right things? What about the community process? Can I? What questions should I um, ask the community to really find out what makes this a great neighborhood or place? And then add to that um, uh, what I call placekeeping elements, and the collective of that creates a great place. So I really wanted to uh, provide 
both, again, rigorous theory, but more important for this world, we need applied case studies that show us where we've been very successful and how we can improve, and most importantly, provide tools for those practitioners, community advocates, and politicians out there uh, so they can go out, and if they have a similar project, they can, again, reference it and say, this is what happened here. Well, how does this apply, this real experience, apply to our situation, and how can we apply those, um, call it universal, uh, principles to our own project to create not only immediate great urban design, but an evolving, enduring urban design. Can a layperson without urban design experience use this book? Absolutely. You know, the the interesting thing there is um, I've used two editors on the project, and I think what was most um, revealing to me was when one of uh, my colleagues uh, phoned me and we were having uh, a little book launch and he couldn't attend. And he said to me, he said, oh gosh, I, I really love this book. And I said, why do you, why do you like it? He said, because your voice comes through. And my voice, mm. uh, the voice or the intention of this book is to be at a grounded level. In other words, translate a lot of, I think, what we would both refer to as esoteric language down to um, a language that can be used by community advocates, by interested citizens, uh, and even uh, my wonderful wife, Laura, said 40 pages into it, she said, wow, this is very interesting. I want to read more. Uh, so the audience I'm focused on is certainly, from an academic standpoint, I think it's a great um, it's a great book as an overall reference, but most importantly, my mission, uh, what I want to do is use this as a tool to transform, especially um, as many uh, cities in the United States that need help that are on second or third tier. In other words, they don't get the attention of the big cities. Uh, Canada the same and many international cities who really need help, this is a tool for them um, whether it be the top, uh, the mayor or the council, down to um, uh, simply the planner or the community advocate. I want this as uh, a hand reference for those people to inspire them to say, I can help change my community, and this, this is a tool, these case studies are a tool to help in that transformation. Well, Michael, what makes a great city design? I guess I could summarize them in terms of four ingredients to great city design. The first is place, and that's the heart of my book. A great city is beautiful, incorporating nature, timeless architecture, and that grandeur. In other words, a framework for city, uh, city form, including views, waterfronts, city buildings, public plazas, and grand parks. In other words, it's really got to have a heart and dynamism to it. The second aspect is a city has to be accessible. Great city is an accessible and compact um, unit with a variety of ways to move through it that are convenient, safe. And what we miss largely in North America is this aspect of affordability. The third element is prosperity. Um, through my education and so forth, sometimes the economics of a city is, is regarded especially from the development standpoint, is not, and the design community, is not seen as a, a great thing. And I believe it's an incredible driver. Um, in other words, a great city is prosperous, enduring in terms of creating meeting places where jobs, employment, and ideas are generated and nurtured. So it's much more than just dollars and cents. It's about the tradition of a gathering place for people to come together to really do and rise to their highest. The final thing of a city is it also has, besides being grand and large in terms of uh, sensational experiences, it also has to have the smallness of neighborhood. That is, a great city blends civic place inspiration with the magical smaller places that create intimacy and home. Is your book only about downtowns? 
That's interesting because normal urban design talks about, you know, many of the books talk about the grand downtowns. And in fact, it's really uh, about downtown suburbs, which I believe is the next frontier of what they're calling suburban retrofits. In other words, we have to go back in and densify, create um, create great communities where there's only single uses. People refer to it as uh, suburban sprawl. And then there's something that's just evolving. It's called rural sprawl. In other words, all those 8 to 10 acres that people are buying up um, uh, that really need uh, small-town urban design, design. So the whole suburb, rural, village, and city work together as a regional unit. In your title, you talk about sustainable. Now, how does sustainability fit, and what does it mean? You know, the sustainability actually is um, part of the system of the book. That's really the hook to the book, because sustainability in itself is not enough. It's simply a theory and an attitude. What this book tries to do, and I think it is successful in doing so, it connects the theory of sustainability with the practice of urban design. So, in fact, we operationalize that abstract idea in, in many minds comes, uh, comes real through the practice of dynamic urban design process. We've been listening to Michael Von Hausen. He is the author of his book, Dynamic Urban Design, a handbook for creating sustainable communities worldwide. Michael, tell us how to get your book. Well, the best thing is through, uh, we've got a number of venues. You can look on, naturally, the iUniverse uh, website. Um, it's accessible in hardcover, uh, softcover, and also an ebook version for those people who are uh, love downloading and reading off their uh, iPads. Now, obviously, the... Um, uh, other venues are uh, Amazon. It's also available on Amazon.com and uh, the Barnes & Noble website. Look under their uh, Rising Star program because it's there. Thank you so much, Michael, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. My pleasure. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Victor Frankel, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Journey of My Heart, a memoir. 
And the author is Marianne Shevland, and Marianne joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Marianne. Hi, how are you? Well, great to have you with us, and a great memoir. This literally is going to take us down this road that many are facing and many more will face because of the baby boomers getting older and older, and many are, of course, uh, going to be a very create a very trying trying experience for their family members as they pass away. It's it's uh, it's a reality. It's just going to happen, just like it happened to you in 2003. Your husband, after 19 years of going deteriorating, his health just uh, getting uh, uh, less and less. And there, that big day came, didn't it? December 9th, 2003. That wasn't surprising. At the same time, it was. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it literally took my breath away because I lost my very best friend. And it was, it was very traumatic because the day he died was our 41st wedding anniversary. And I found him dead at our home. And it just, it just nearly killed me. Yeah, that's well. This is a love story, as you write, where one partner is smitten with a progressive terminal disease, a family who faced the unknown with emotional courage, determination, and the desire to bring the best quality possible to their allotted time. So, over those nineteen years, you still wanted to make it the best, but at the same time, uh, it just got harder and harder. Absolutely. It was, it was so difficult because so much time was spent in the hospitals with major crises and ICU. And I mean, it was just life and death seemed like all the time for a long period of time. And yet when we'd have those brief windows when he would be feeling more stable in a better situation, we always talk about what we wanted to do in the future and try to hang on to our dreams. And, you know, it was just, we were just wanting the very, very best for our other partner, you know, and it was just devastating because we both knew what was coming and it was just killing us inside. But we were just determined that on a good day, if we could go outside and sit on the porch and just have a cup of coffee and talk and listen to the birds chirping, and et cetera, that was a wonderful day. That was a quality day because we had each other. Mm. And we truly believed that if we did everything that all the doctors told us to do, that, you know, he was going to get through this. You know, this too shall pass. But it didn't. And it, it was just devastating. But you knew as you wrote, you always knew that someday, way out there in the future, Sheldon would be gone. Uh, and, I, of course, I when did. that day came earlier than you expected, uh, how did that leave you feeling? Well, absolutely. It was the most horrific thing that ever happened in my life the moment I found him. And when I was dealing with all those intense feelings, uh, I felt like I was going to go crazy. Absolutely crazy. It was extremely a rough passage. It had so many details and the shock and the loneliness and confusion, anger, long periods of depression. Uh, my world just exploded, and I felt I had been hit in my own heart because of his death. I was terribly lost. It was It was just terrible. So My emotions just came and went like waves that crashed into rocky shores. Some of these waves were big and very turbulent, some more than others. But I knew that there was going to be a tugging on my heart for many, many years, and you know I was absolutely right. But eventually in God's time, I reached a, a point of acceptance, mm. and a new beginning began to start, but it was the hardest thing I've ever gone through in my life. Acceptance. That is a, a big, big wall to climb, I'm sure. Oh, slippery slopes on that one. Yeah. And it took many, many years. And even though it's been a long period of time now since he's been gone, in my mind's eye, it seems like moments ago. So I'll never forget, not remember be crushed because of what happened. 
You say there's very little written for the average person to read that will lead to an understanding of how others have made their way through change and grief to eventual recovery. So, obviously, the purpose of your book. Right, right. Uh, most of the books that I had seen prior to mine were written about clinical, you know, and one, two, three steps, but they didn't talk about how are you supposed to get through major lifestyle changes, followed by all these financial hardships and your grief and recovery. Uh, so I was telling my story from a wife's perspective. Uh, I tried to show a torch on this subject because it's often avoided. And I gave the human response to how do you get through moment after moment, day after day. It's excruciating. And my heart goes out to anyone that has to go through this. But millions do. So you need to have some kind of support for yourself. As you Absolutely. Think. Absolutely. I, you know, I would suggest that if you could find a friend who, who you feel very comfortable to talk to, just have them come over or you go to them and sit and talk and don't be judged because the thoughts that tumble out of your head are coming from a place that's called a broken heart. And you need someone just to listen or just to be able to look around and see that friend sitting there means and speaks of volumes. I can't stress that enough. You cannot do this one by yourself. I tried, and it does not work. You need as much support. Also, I tried to do a lot of journaling, and that helped release a lot of my intense feelings, getting them on paper, and that was eventually the start of my book, although I did not realize that because my journaling is in my book and it tells how I went through those terrible hours to working through, getting through the grief, listening to my music, walking, exercise, friends, combination of things like that. But you cannot do this one by yourself. Someone might ask, now, don't the medical doctors explain in detail to you everything you need to know? I wish they did, but frankly, they simply do not have the time nor the energy. They have so many other patients. They come in very quickly into the hospitals and tell you a few short words. This is what you should do when you get home, and, and I'll see you in X amount of days. And you're left thinking, what should I do? You know, it's all my responsibility. I was always afraid to take him home because I thought, what if something happened to him and I didn't even know what to do? Because I wasn't familiar with heart problems, but I sure learned. And you suggest that everyone, when they're going through that medical process, that you take a spiral notebook to every one of these meetings and write everything down. Absolutely, because I tell you what, I scribbled as fast as I could when we were meeting with the doctors. And I tell you, when I got home, it sure made my life easier because those pages were dog-eared because I looked at them frequently. You know, there's just so much, and you're trying to go through all of the critical situation of the crisis and realizing every time you're in the hospital, it's another step moving away from you. And it's you're just scared to death. So, basically, the fear of the unknown is probably the biggest, greatest challenge that could even drive you nuts. Oh, absolutely. I thought I was literally going mad. You know, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I, I, just, I just sat and relived every moment. And it, it was killing me. Literally, it was killing me. But time does help. You know, but you have to get up and start taking those baby steps to try to, you know, get out of the house each day. Maybe if you can only get to the front yard like I did many times, then I made it to the grocery store. Then I made it to church. You know, but I was determined. I was going to try to get my life back because I was just so scared. I'd never been by myself before. And then to lose my partner on our wedding anniversary. But, you know, time has gone by, and I have worked very hard at it. 
and I have a very incredible life now. I'm very happy, and I just want to be able to share my story, that there are so many people out there that are going through this. The thing that really kept me going most was people would say, how can you keep going through this time after time, one crisis after another? Well, I knew it was simple for me, maybe not for others, but the vows that we spoke before God and our friends on our wedding day to love, honor, cherish throughout sickness and health till death do us part were extremely important to me and words that I would always honor because what sustained us most was our love for one another and our continued faith that this too shall pass. How angry were you at God? Honestly, I don't think I went through that phase because my husband had had so many critical life and death and he had been in such pain that it was a relief for me, for him, not to have him suffering and not to see that suffering. So I did not experience anger. Well, that has to be the hardest when you see your loved one suffering. That is the oh, very hardest. Oh, it killed me. It killed me. It literally killed me inside. And I still had to maintain a job and drive, you know, a couple of hours on my commute through heavy traffic and you know, because the main breadwinner was not working. And so all the financial hardships, there's just such a rod of problems to go with this whole package that it's incredible. Very Thanks. important to be actively social. You have to be. You have to be. You know, um, it was just uh, vitally important that, if I could just spend five minutes with somebody just to say, hi, how are you doing? Something not related to crisis, death, bills, that sort of thing. It was just like a shot in the arm to me. So is your book, uh, as you describe your book, this book, The Journey of My Heart, a memoir, Marianne, is it a guide, a step-by-step -step kind of uh, what to do, what not to do? No, no. Okay. It's, uh, it's like more than a memoir. It's an inspirational guide for others who find themselves faced with seemingly insurmountable challenge. Uh, they need a story to relate to uh, for their personal lives, like I told my personal story. Events like the impending death, the struggle to pay all the medical and household bills, with the loss of the major breadwinner, uh, you know, with a full-time job. And I, I sincerely and hope and pray that Journey of My Heart is the book that can help others answer all those questions and help sort out their problems by looking at how I led my life and how I went through this journey. Marianne, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can order it from Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, or iUniverse Publishing Company. And that's in hardback, softback, ebooks, or nook. Well, thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you for having me. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4 or 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. 
Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage, connectwithjulianainmedia.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to TogiNet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on TogiNet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Lies, Have Ruined the World. How the lies of religion, government, and the courts have invaded every corner of our lives, enslaving billions on the globe, and the solutions that will give us back our freedoms. And the author is Dennis Richard Prue, and Denny joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Denny. Hi, Steve. How you doing? Well, I want to prepare everyone. You're a man just filled with passion about this. Yes, uh, I guess the topic is one of those that people are not going to be neutral one way or the other. It's, it's going to excite passion. So I'm passionate about what I believe and what I've found. Well, you say the world is based on lies. Every religion is a lie. Every government is a horrible misrepresentation of the truth. Every court is corrupt and unconstitutional. But the real world is based on science and fact. So I guess we've lost touch with facts. Is that it? Well, I think what's happened is that the lies are so pernicious. They're in every corner of our society that uh, it has representatives called liars who stand up and defend the lies rather than take a new look at the world of science and facts and determine to tell truth as opposed to get comfortable with the lies they were indoctrinated into. And uh, for me, it started out when I was a young kid. Um, I was exposed to the lies of the community I lived in we lived in a community that was divided down the river, down the middle of the river. Blacks lived on one side and whites on the other. And unfortunately, the churches and the government and the courts all reinforced that craziness because blacks were supposed to be inferior. And I remember hearing a sermon about women, that women shouldn't work outside the home. In fact, the minister said women who work outside the home are whores. And as a kid, I knew that was a lie. My teachers were women. The clerks at the stores were women. Secretaries were women. There were all kinds of people, and the nurses at the hospital were women. They weren't whores. And so I knew it was a lie, but it was amazing to me that the community that I lived in not only believed these lies, but reinforced them and made sure that... uh, women had to pay a price for working outside the home. I mean, even women who were divorced or widowed or whatever else, I don't know what they were supposed to do. But, of course, it was a lie. And so I, I set out on a journey even then that uh, to find out truth about things because I knew that if there wasn't truth, it wouldn't be freedom. I knew there wasn't freedom for women. I knew there wasn't freedom for blacks. And then as I, I grew, I found out that the courts were extremely corrupt. We lost our family fortune because the probate court decided to divide it amongst the lawyers and a corrupt judge. And I, we absolutely know he was a corrupt alcoholic because I went to school with his son who later exposed the fact that he'd been stealing from estates for years. He was deceased at that point when his son revealed that to me. But we lost the family fortune because of corrupt courts. And then I realized that the probate court was a wonderful place for corrupt lawyers and judges to live off society, uh, make fortune. So anyway, then as I grew up, I volunteered for Vietnam, and I realized that my government uh, did nothing but lie. President Johnson, President Nixon uh, told continuous lies that cost the lives of over 60,000 you know, wonderful Americans. But... You know, our whole history has been a lie of slavery, a lie of unconstitutional discrimination against women, blacks, minorities, immigrants, gays, 
And so I wanted to find out what's the truth. I figured the truth was the route to freedom for all human beings. It would uh, certainly get us a little closer we are today as far as how we see women, but we haven't made it yet. Women are still discriminated against. They get paid less. They're treated poorly. Blacks still don't have freedom. I mean, the tokenism doesn't amount to the same thing as equal education and equal opportunity. So I wanted to do my research, and I spent a great deal of my younger years getting the tools to do that. So I learned uh, Greek and Hebrew and Latin and German and Russian, Koine Greek, Aramaic, because I wanted to read the original texts in the original languages. And what I found absolutely shocked me. Well, that's impressive that you did all that. And, of course, along the way, you were a former CEO of an international consulting firm uh, telling, I guess, businesses uh, they didn't want to hear what you had to say because it was, again, facts and truth. Absolutely. You know, when a corporation is based on lies, they might not even realize they're lies, but there's a price to be paid. Lies are never harmless. And so when I would see companies doing strategic planning around groups of senior executives telling each other lies, I would say to whoa, 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 (laughs) there are truths out there that are important to discover so that uh, you can get on the path towards, you know, making a more profitable company. And I had over 110 clients and every single one of them made money from doing the hard work of exposing the lies and learning the truth about their markets and their competitors and so on. And, you know, I had a good background. I have a couple of master's degrees. I have a master's in science, and I taught graduate courses in, in business, uh, exposing my students to, you know, if you're going to get out there and be successful, truth and facts have to be the basis for everything you do. So if lies are the source of, uh, you know, your, the base for your life, you're in trouble. And that's when I began to keep notes. I took a 23-year period. I had boxes and boxes of notes. And one of the things I did was to explore religion. And what I found out was, uh, you know, religion's a lie. Every religion's a lie. And I studied all of them. Now, even though there are 3,800 different versions of it in the United States alone, I started with Judaism. And starting with Genesis realize that the world wasn't created 6,000 years ago. We know that the world is 4.6 billion years old. We also know that humans have been around for 160,000 years at least. We know that DNA spread all over the world 100,000 years before the mythical figures of Adam and Eve were created in the imaginations of some Jewish writers of the Torah. And so it gets to the critical point. If Adam and Eve never existed, then they couldn't have committed an act of sin that brought death into the world. Death existed for billions of years. And so Genesis 1, continuing, are all lies, all created by very clever liars when they were in captivity in Assyria, not Egypt, in Assyria, 700 years after the supposed Egypt events, and they wrote lies. They were creating literally a myth about who they were as a people. Now, the critical piece that comes down, if Adam and Eve didn't exist, and they didn't bring sin and death into the world, then Jesus is irrelevant. He's totally irrelevant. He didn't rescue us from sin and death. Oh my gosh. That means whoever Jesus was, he was just delusional. He believed the Jewish lies because he was a Jew himself. But that didn't make it any more true. And you can go down point for point. No one the ark never happened. There was never a universal flood. We know that for a fact. We know that evolution is absolutely fact. There's no longer any question about how DNA came down to us and who we are involved from. But if, let's say, Noah's ark were true, like religionists want to say, That would mean that in a mass murder of millions of people done by Yahweh, their God, it would have been the the largest mass murder of third trimester fetuses in the history of the world. Not something religionists should go around bragging about. And then they have other events like the captivity in Egypt, which never happened, by the way. There's not one single piece of evidence. 
that there was a people called the Israelites in Egypt for 400 years in captivity. Never happened. But let's say, you know, just to humor them, that the Passover, where the angel of death passed over the homes of the Egyptians and uh, killed the firstborn, that would be the largest mass murder in the history of the world on one night. And sadly, Jews celebrate that as a happy time. Let's have a meal. That's when God killed over a million people just so that he could tell us we were special. And what we realize, religion is cruel, it's degenerate, it's a lie. There's not one piece of evidence that the Exodus ever happened. There's not one sandal. That's 40 years in the desert for over a million people. There's nothing, no human excrement, no monuments, no clothes, no nothing. There's nothing there. And when you talk about the blood in the Nile, I mean... All you have to do is think logically, scientifically. That would be 74 trillion cubic feet of blood replacing all the water that would have decimated all wildlife, all fish, all humans, because humans without water for about four days would all be dead. We know that event never happened. Historically, there is no note of that by anyone other than these writers of the Torah 700 years later when they were trying to figure out who they were as a people in captivity in Assyria. But we also know it's a lie because they talked about priestly functions with Aaron. The temple never existed when, when Moses supposedly was around. Therefore, that's anachronistic. It's a lie. You go point for point for point, and I have proven in my book, Genesis, Genesis and Exodus are total lies, that Jesus' event is totally irrelevant. There was no sin and death to be rescued from. Death is natural and normal. And everything that's ever existed on the earth has died. And we will too. So now if we know that truth, then we're no longer going to allow religionists to tell us, don't use contraception. Don't enjoy sex even in marriage. You know, don't live your life you know, in freedom. Do what we tell you to do. Bring us your money. We're not going to put up with that anymore. We're not going to put up with speaking tongues and snake handlers and other liars. But we now know that since 97% of the people in the United States believe that nonsense, one form or another, that means they're also the judges. They're also the politicians. They're also the president and the vice president. And if you believe the nonsense that the world is only 6,000 years old, my goodness, how are you going to make decisions about the economy? and world peace, and about, you know, running a civil society. If you're going to go back and refer to a book of lies as the basis for everything that's important, you see, it's just tragic. You know, and then the worst thing about where it finally came out is that Islam is really just a sect of Judaism. If you read the Koran, you realize it's just massive borrowing from the Hebrew scriptures. And that's what uh, Muhammad wanted it to be. But he just decided he got all bent out of shape one day and decided to murder all the Jews under his uh, reign. And uh, so that kind of severed the tie with the Jewish religion, even though they still you know, honored the prophets and Jesus and all that sort of thing. The reality is, once Judaism fell, as a total lie, Christianity and Islam goes too. That's six billion people who believe lies. And now I'm writing a book telling people... You're liars. And until you tell the truth, everything else is easier to lie about. And in fact, it is. Women are still discriminated against. Blacks are poorly treated. There are slaves held in the world, world by people who are rich. What a tragic reality, and it's all based on lies. Well, as I said, at, so the, as I said at the beginning, yeah, uh, Denny, uh, in introducing you, you're a man of a great deal of passion. I think you've proven that. <laughs> because there's no middle ground here for you. There's no middle ground. And of course, not only talking about religion, your book goes through, as you've just laid the the case, of if, if religion is a lie, then all governments are liars, uh, government officials. And of course, you're right to the point with a chapter about lawyers. All lawyers are scum. I mean, you you didn't mince any words there. No, the, uh, the lawyers in our society now use the courts as ATMs. 
It's so manipulative. People worry about not being able to afford uh, medical care. Nobody can afford legal care. That's tragic because the courts are supposed to be the final arbiter between you and me and our constitutional rights and so on. If you're not rich, you have no rights in the legal system in America. The other thing is the legal system, the laws are written by uh, congressmen who tend to be religious idiots, and they write laws to enforce morality. You cannot enforce morality. But this is the result. We now have millions of people in prison because the morality of marijuana became something that the religionists in Congress wanted to enforce. Let's get them out there. Let's make sure that there are more home invasions, policemen killed, everything else. We're going to stop drugs, and they haven't stopped drugs. But, boy, they sure stand up and talk about law and order and morality. That's religious nonsense. That's Old Testament, an eye for an eye. And even worse, what we're finding, over 2,000 blacks and Hispanics have been released by the Innocence Project because they were innocent. But they were found guilty by moralistic courts and juries and congressional laws. If you look at most of the laws on the book, they have nothing to do with safety and a secure society. They have to do with moralistic nonsense. And now the Catholic Church wants to go to the government and say, we want to stop contraception even for our employees who are not Catholic. And what does the government do? Backs down. So everyone bows to religion. Absolutely. It's in every single corner of our lives. And we listen to the nonsense. I mean, we're going to listen to this, this Pope. I call him the love me Pope. Love me, I pretend I'm poor. <laughs> and, I, and I live in a multi-million dollar apartment. And uh, he's not going to go out there, though, but... If you're a 12-year-old girl who gets raped and gets pregnant, if you have an abortion, you're going to hell. Where's the compassion? Where's the compassion for the poor? Hundreds and thousands of churches and schools are closed in poor areas, but not in rich areas. But this is the church of the poor. There are how many thousands of pedophile priests that have been hidden and protected by the church? When you live a lie you can do something like that. And thus the title of Denny's book, Lies Have Ruined the World. Dennis Richard Prue is the author. Denny, tell us how to get your book. Well, I've made it 99 cents as an e-book on Amazon.com. I'm not out to make profit. I want the book to be read, discussed, and I want people to prove me wrong. Well, there you go, everyone. You can't beat that challenge, especially at that price. Thank you, Denny, so much for being with us. Obviously, you've shared your Great, passion you. about lies. Thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. I appreciate the time. Thanks, Steve. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.